0: Or have a seat. Well, church, it's good to be with you again this week. Um, As Justin mentioned last week, I was up in North Carson guest preaching for a church that we're in partnership with called Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, But I really did miss being here. I really did. And I'm thankful, though, that even when I'm not here, what happens? Well, Christ is exalted, right? His perfect life, right? His, his substitutionary death, right? His resurrection, his ascension back to his throne was still preached and exalted before you. And so even though I love my role here, you do not need me to worship Christ. And thanks be to God for that. But I do love being here. Now, this morning, uh, we are going to continue in our study in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, that very first book of the Bible. And today, so you know, it's actually going to be our last look in Genesis before we hit pause for a little while, because next week we're actually going to be doing a standalone sermon, looking in, honing in on what is the office of elder, what is the biblical office of elder in the church going to be a neat special service, which I'm looking forward to. And then the following week, the 27th, is actually when, uh, in the church calendar, when Advent begins. Advent. And Advent is the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas, where we are usually, and typically the church just hones in on why would God's people look forward to Christ's coming his first coming, when Christ was born, right, in the manger, we celebrate on Christmas Day. But also, then, why do Christians then long for Christ to come back? That's what Advent season is all about. It's, it's about longing for the coming of Christ. And this year, we are going to be doing that under the title of Beholding the Glory of Christ, so I'm excited to tell you more about in the coming weeks. I'm also really looking forward to singing those wonderful Christmas hymns that we do once Advent begins. But today, today we get to stand on one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. If you're using one of those black pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 16. Which in God's providence, I think is a really fitting end to this last phase of walking through Genesis. Because in many ways, Genesis 22 is the climax of the life of Abraham. Of all of what God has been doing in his life has been building up to this moment to display and declare exactly who he is. You know, we've seen God move in Abraham who we met back in chapter 12, in a lot of miraculous ways, haven't we? We've seen him move and call him to do a lot of things. But this chapter, right, this Sunday for us, what we see is God's promises and his provision, we get to see, get to see God with this crystal clarity, pinpoint accuracy, of who he is and what does he do. What does God do in providing for us? That's what we're going to be looking at. And what I'm hoping for, and what I'm going to pray for in just a second, is that when we walk out of here today, church, that we're going to be leaping and bounding with joy because what we learned about the God of Genesis 22, because the God of Genesis 22 is also the same God whom we worship today. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Forever. So we have a wonderful, wonderful next, what I hope for is next 30, 40 minutes ahead of us. To really be able to to zone in on this wonderful God that we worship. But let's go ahead and go in prayer um, before I actually read the text before us. As I normally do, I want to pray for you. And as I am doing that, will you pray for me? And then I'll read Genesis 22. Well, Father, before we actually look at your word, I want to thank you that, that you have revealed yourself in it. And as we embark on studying, looking at all the ways that you have moved in the past and, and even will move in the future. God, we ask that you would use this morning and this text to edify us, to encourage us, to save us. And so, God, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear, eyes to see exactly who you are. And, God, I pray for our kiddos next door and the teachers that are leading them as they look at this same passage and consider what kind of God would provide a substitute like he did. That every single one of us, including the youngest hearts, would be able to walk out of here today leaping with the joy that they have in you. And so, Lord, we need you for that task. And so it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let me go ahead and just read all of Genesis 22 for us, and then we will walk through it together. It begins by saying, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Now, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Camuel, the father of Aram, Kassed, Hazo, Pildash, Diblof, and Bethuel. Bethuel Father Rebecca, these eight Milka, bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Tebah, Gaham, Dahash, and Mahakah. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God indeed. Now the title of today's sermon, as you can see, is God Will Provide. God will provide, because in essence, that's what we see over and over in the life of Abraham, right? It's what we see over and over here in this text. It's what we see in our own lives, isn't it? That God will provide. The God who is the creator and sustainer of all things provides exactly what we need and when we need it for his purposes. Now, if you're a note taker, let me give you some categories that we're going to be looking at. Four categories of provision, four ways that I see God providing in this text. The first one is God provides the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham. Number two, God provides the faith of Abraham, which results in the obedience of Abraham. So God provides the faith and obedience. Number three, God provides the sacrifice. God provides the sacrifice. And lastly, God provides the gospel. God provides the gospel. Now, looking back at verse 1, we see the call of Abraham, don't we? It begins with saying, after these things, God tested Abraham. Although Abraham's faith had been tested many times up to this point, what we are seeing is the test, the way... What God wants to teach Abraham almost more than anything else so far. But let's look at those very first words. After these things. What things is the author, Moses, referring to here in Genesis 22? Well, in some ways, I think it's referring to all the life of Abraham. After God had called him to leave the land that he knew. To follow a God who had began this relationship with him. And to follow him into a land that he did not know. But not only that, to follow God and trust the promises in which God had given Abraham. The promises that his nation, that he would be the father of this mighty nation. And he would be the father of many nations. And that he would have a son. And that son not only would lead to these nations, but Out of his offspring would come the blessing of the entire world. So God had been moving in the life of Abraham. Had been testing him in many ways. Do you trust me? Do you trust my timing? Do you believe that I'm good? Do you believe that I know what I'm doing? But this one seems a little bit different. More specifically, in just a previous chapter, in chapter 21, maybe Moses is referring to that after these things. Where in chapter 21, we learn that with the birth of Isaac, that promised son had finally come to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And God basically calls Abraham to trust him and to send out this other son that he had with a mistress, Ishmael, to send him and his mother away forever. And so in many ways, Abraham only had one son remaining, one son remaining, one son of promise, in which Moses wants to highlight, at this point, there's no backup plan, right, there's no other sons, there's no one else, there's only one promised son, and God is going to tell Abraham, do you trust me with him, do you trust me with him? Now we don't know for certain how much time has taken place from Genesis 21 to 22, But it's likely that it's been at least 10 years. At least 10 years. Maybe more. And and during those 10 years, we have evidence from this text that Abraham and Isaac had bonded. That Abraham loved his son, Isaac. That was trying to follow God and to teach his son to follow God. It's what makes the words of verse 2 so startling, so radical, so piercing, it feels like. Let's look at those together. When God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and do what? Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. You know, we don't have any clue in the text, but if it was me, I would ask for clarification. Can you repeat that one more time, Lord? Just so I'm clear, you're saying my only son, the son that I love, the son of promise, the one who you said was finally going to come, and has come. You want me to take him and do what? Offer him as a sacrifice? But remember, this is a test. So we're told in the verse 1, it's a test. So we have some clues looking into this, but Abraham didn't know this at the time. But it's important for us to know this, because God is not prescribing child sacrifice. Okay? He is not prescribing that. In fact, throughout the witness of Scripture, is always to care for kids, to care for them. So he's not prescribing child sacrifices, but he is calling Abraham to trust him in a mighty and miraculous way but it does seem out of place right it does seem almost out of character with god and the promise that he had given to abraham because isn't this a threat to that promise to bring about that son that would bless the entire world well how are we going to do that if i have to sacrifice him lord how is he going to lead to this blessing of the entire world isn't this going to bring so much agony to me? Isn't this going to bring agony to Sarah? Isn't this going to bring agony to the whole nation of Israel? Well, in many ways, yes. But I believe that Abraham didn't ask for clarification here. Because there was a time when God spoke to him very clearly back in Genesis 18 when he told him, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Or is there anything too wonderful for him to be able to accomplish? Maybe he has those words, those promises of God circulating, echoing in his mind. Now, pastorally, do I think we need to take a pause here and ask us of what what is going on here? Why in What would this reveal about Abraham? If this was a test, what would this reveal about Abraham or what would this reveal about us? Well, let me ask you this. Is our highest desire the blessing of God? Is our highest desire the things that we can get from God? Or is our highest desire God himself? Or another way to say it is, do we worship the blessings of God or do we worship the God of the blessings? I think it's something that we need to go back to often. What is it? What's our highest hope? Right? What's our ultimate desire? Him or his stuff? Well, for Abraham, a lot of this is going to clarify that. Now, starting in verse 3, we see God provide the faith to Abraham to respond, right, with this unquestioned obedience, Or he doesn't ask for clarification. He doesn't challenge it. He doesn't try to argue with God. He doesn't try to present any other options as Abraham has done before. But here we just see him wake up early in the morning and get to work in following and being obedient to God's call on him. But remember, that's the work of God in his life. Where we first met Abraham in Genesis 12... God has been growing his faith. Abraham has not been obedient many times. But as God has been working and challenging and growing his faith, obedience always flows out of that. Right? Obedient doesn't. You don't have faith because of obedience. You have obedience because of faith. And so he responds in obedience. He gets all what they need for that burnt offering. He gets Isaac. Abraham grabs two servants and all of their materials, and they head out. They head out to this place called Mount Moriah. And we even have a detail here in verse 4 that it was not a short trip. In fact, it says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So they've been traveling for quite some time. Now, take a quick note about that third day, because I'm going to come back to that detail in a moment. But looking at verse 5, looking at verse 5, when they get to this mountain in which they are about to ascend, listen to what Abraham tells the two servants. He instructs them that they are to stay here, and that Abraham and Isaac are going to go up the mountain and worship But he points out that him and I, me and the boy, we will return to you. We will return to you. Both of them. Both of them. Two are going to come up and two are going to come back. But what about the sacrifice, right? What about the offering? Is Abraham, like, lying here? Is he trying to skirt away from the truth in order so maybe Isaac doesn't take off? Or maybe the two servants don't try to stop Abraham? Abraham? Is Abraham lying? Well, this is where we actually need the New Testament church to actually help us understand the Old Testament. The New Testament provides commentary to the Old Testament. And now you don't have to turn there, but I want to, on the screens, there will be a passage out of the book of Hebrews. Where the author of Hebrews actually gives us a little bit of insight of what's going on in the mind of Abraham that he would say this to the servants, And this is really neat, church. Because Abraham believed that God would resurrect his son. Let's read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, so talking about Genesis 22, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was, in fact, was, was the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 19. This one's good. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham, what we just learned from Hebrews, Abraham believed that even though he was to offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering, he believed that God had the power and the goodness to resurrect him, to continue his promises. That he was able to bring him back from the dead. The beginning seeds of a father resurrecting a son. Now, remember how I told you to remember that third day phrase back in verse 4? Well, this is where I want to to point out a few things. Because throughout the Bible, actually, the third day, or on three days, there's a lot of things that happen on the third day in Scripture, If you were to read your Bible carefully and be looking for this, you would notice that Joshua, he entered into the promise on the third, the promised land on the third day. Or even before that, Moses, in leading the people through the wilderness, when God gave them the law at Mount Sinai, God came down from the mountain on the third day. Or well-known, when Jonah was swallowed up by the fish, how long was he in the fish before he was delivered? Three days. But all of those details, including ours today, is, are pointing to one great reality. It's what we see in connection with that hope of resurrection. That one day, one day God's people would see a resurrection happen on the third day. But it wouldn't be Isaac, but it would be the eternal substitute for Isaac, Jesus Christ. So in many ways, we are learning that a substitutionary death will precede a resurrected son. You see how this narrative is so much bigger than just its immediate context? This narrative is wanting us to go much further to see its ultimate fulfillment, its ultimate reality. It's a foreshadow to the Heavenly Father offering up His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. But I want to continue with the narrative because there's still a lot of really neat things I want to show you. So Abraham and Isaac, they begin to make their way to the top of the mountain. Now Isaac is old enough to bear the wood that would be laid upon him. And it says in verse 6 that Abraham was holding the knife in the fire. Can you imagine that, church? Can you imagine holding a knife that you knew that you were going to have to use on your own son in a matter of moments? Can you imagine just the, the beating of your chest, right? Just coming out of your, just out of you. And listen, I've, throughout this week. I have been wrecked by this passage. Primarily because I've never preached this passage while having an only son before. Last time I preached this passage, my son Levi was not born. And so now I'm thinking about this when I have only one son in whom I love. Look at verse 7, though. Verse 7. When Isaac said to his father, My father... And Abraham responds and said, "Here I am, my son." So you see the relationship that they have, right? You see the affection that's even before them, where Isaac is confirming, "You're my dad." And Abraham's responding, "You're my son." When I go to, when I put my son Levi, who I just talked about, to bed at night and tuck him in, there's one thing that I always do with him. It's really special to me, is. I get him on his pillow. Right, I lay him down. I get on my knees. Twins are in bunk beds. He's on the bottom bunk. I get on my knees, and I, and I kind of just lean over him, Kind of, so I'm looking him right in the eye. Right, he's a, he's a four-year-old little boy. His attention span is kind of all over the place. But there's one thing I want him to, to know before he goes to sleep every night. And so I get right in front of him, and I say, Levi, I love that you're my son. And he looks back at me, with the same silly grin that I have. And he goes, I love that you're my dad. And then we hug. And he goes to sleep. Sometimes. But that's the goal. But it's one of the last things that I do with him. And that's why I think this passage can be so impactful. Because when we see that Abraham talking about his only son, the son whom he loves. It hits a different note for me now. And here in our narrative, we're seeing this. We're seeing just the affection that Isaac has for his dad and Abraham has for his son. Which is very encouraging for me as someone who wants to lead their son and my daughters to follow Christ and I think about just the conversation and all that's happening here in Genesis 22, that Abraham, however long that Isaac has been alive, he's been doing a pretty good job teaching his son to trust God because he knows, right, the details of this burnt offering. They've done this before. He knows what it means to follow God. And listen, dads, our job is not to change the we can't change the heart of our kids, right? We can't, we can't save them. That's not our job. That's God's job. But what we can do is show them and demonstrate what it looks like to be a man after God's heart. And say, follow me as I follow Christ. We can't do that. And pray like crazy that God would save them. That he would do something. You see, our sons or grandsons or friends... Whatever young man that you have in your life, and I know across our church, there's probably a variety of how that looks. But no matter how old you are or how young somebody is, you have to know this. We are always watching you. Watching to see how do you prioritize your life. When things get difficult, do you trust God or not? What are you going to pursue and prioritize above all else? Our sons are always watching that. And so Isaac asks, doesn't he? Because he knows. He's probably, they've probably done a burnt offering before. He knows what goes on in this. So he asks his dad, Hey, where is the lamb? Right? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And how does Abraham respond? He says, well, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. God will provide. We can trust him even when, it, even when we don't know exactly how. And Abraham and Isaac, what do they do? They continue to be obedient out of their faith in God. And they go up to the mountain. They build the altar. Isaac bounds, or Abraham bounds Isaac to the wood. And there's no indication of struggle right? There's no indication of Isaac saying, no, 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 this is not fair. What are you doing, Dad? There's silence. There's silence on the part of Isaac's part. And what happens? Well, Abraham pulls out the knife. About to plunge it into his only son, the son in whom he loves. And what happens? He hears somebody yelling out his name, Abraham, Abraham. It's the angel of the Lord. saying, stop, stop. Don't hurt your son. You've passed the test. I know what you fear most. I know that you trust me. In church, we have to remember this, is God is omniscient, meaning that he's he's all-knowing. So it's not as if God learned about Abraham in the way that you and I learn. But in many ways, Abraham learned that he trusted God above all else. But even though he passed the test, the lesson continued. What kind of God do I worship? That lesson continued because what happens? Well, an offering is still needed. And so the Lord provides a sacrifice. Look at verse 13. It says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So in verse 13, we see Abraham lift up his eyes again. Language that we've seen throughout the life of Abraham. Him lifting up his eyes Lifting up his eyes to a land, lifting up his eyes to a visitation from God. But here we see Isaac, or Abraham rather, lift up his eyes to what? A substitute offering. The greatest thing that any person could ever lift up their eyes to is someone who would pay the penalty for them. It's a picture of the greatest thing that we get to do. right? So here we see a ram caught in a thicket. And the language even implies that it had not been there. It's not like they missed it on their way up. But it was right there. God had provided that in a miraculous way. Showing that God always provides a substitute offering. A substitute offering. And so Abraham and Isaac, what do they do? They worship God on that mountain through the substitute provided by God. And in verse 14, Abraham calls that place Yahweh HaHa, Or maybe you're more familiar with the King James version of that, of that Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. Or the literal English translation which we have here in our Bibles, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide. But notice, notice the language though. It's not the Lord has provided, even though that's true. He has provided past tense, but the Lord will provide a present and also future reality. Because there is a future reality to what's going to happen at this place. It's why God even repeats through verses 15 through 18, which I'm not going to look through, but God repeats the promises that he had given to Abraham at the beginning. That God has not done. God was still at work. God was still moving his plan of redemption that began in the garden and is going to complete to the end. But he says, upon this mountain, this place, the Lord will provide. So what's so important or special about Mount Moriah? This area. Well, a couple of things. One is, we we learn later in Scripture, um, Specifically, in 2 Chronicles 3, we actually learn that upon this place, and how they knew exactly where that was, I don't know. But they knew that upon this place, that Abraham and Isaac went, is the place that David had been, and Solomon, David's son, then declared, upon this place is where I'm going to build the temple. The temple. So the worship of God can continue. But not just the worship of God, because what happened at the temple? Sacrifice happened at the temple. Right? The sacrifice of these atoning lambs, these atoning lambs would happen year after year after year, thousands and thousands and thousands of them, but they were all temporary. They were all temporary sacrifices, longing and waiting for one sacrifice that would be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And that's where I want to move to point number four. That God provides the gospel. Provides the gospel. Because it's in this very same area, church. This very same area where a mountain known as Golgotha or Calvary is where we would see another son have to carry wood up it for his own sacrifice. Right? Jesus whom John the Baptist, if you remember at the beginning of, his, of John's gospel, is when he, when he looked at Jesus, do you remember what he said? When he looked at Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So like Abraham, God the Father, was using, Genesis 22 was this foreshadow, this picture of what he was going to do all these years later, where God the Father, who completely and eternally loved his only begotten Son, gave him to be offered up for us. Like Isaac, Jesus would not object. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. But unlike Isaac, God did not provide a, sacri- or a substitute for Jesus. And why is that? Because the substitute was Jesus. He was the substitute for us. Jesus was the one who we needed. Jesus was the one who was truly God and truly man. The only one that could then bridge the gap eternally between God and humanity. The only one that could be a perfect and last sacrifice. So in this way, we are like Isaac, where someone died so we could live, so we could live. Church, do you see this? Do you see how God has provided the gospel, how Genesis 22 is this picture of this ultimate reality that we have between God the Father and God the Son? It's really what we've been seeing throughout Genesis, isn't it? Where God is showing and declaring his love for sinners like you and I. But not just declaring his love, but demonstrating his love. Right? Because what's one of the most famous passages in the Bible? John 3.16. It's a good passage. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Genesis 22 was preparing us to receive John 3.16. And if you're not a Christian this morning, which it's okay if you're not, but I want you to hear, this is why God has given us the Old Testament. This is why God has given us these narratives to show us and to declare us who he is. As we saw last week when Justin preached on the sufficiency of Scripture, the Old Testament was given to us to make us wise for salvation so that we could know the God of all eternity. We could know the God who has created everything and we can know what he has done in providing his only son so that we may live. And I want you to know that. I want you to believe that. I want you to not be trying to go through this world trying to be good enough, trying to earn your way into heaven when, at the root, at the depths of who all of us are, we can't. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough. Whether you believe God or not does not take away the reality that God has given us His only begotten Son. And I want you to believe in Him, I want you to trust Him. I want you to trust him in the way that Abraham trusted God in this moment, saying, you're all I have. You're my only hope. Because that's where I'm at. And I pray that's where you're at. So Genesis 22. Right, as we're almost done. As, as it catapults us to the cross, as it catapults us into the love of God, we see that through this sacrifice, this is the substitutionary sacrifice through this ram that was offered up in the place of Isaac. Well, what happens? Well we'll pick that up in January right, as we continue, but you'll see that God continues his promise that Isaac has sons. And their sons have sons, and those sons then lead to Jesus Himself, who then became that last and perfect sacrifice. The Son who did. Resurrect on the third day. All right, one more, one more thing, and I'll be done. How do we then apply this, right? How, do, how did Paul or how did the New Testament authors then take this beautiful reality of God giving his only son, not withholding him for our benefit, what do we do with that? Does it have any practical application to our life? Well, it does. Let me show you from Romans 8. Verses 32 through 35. When Paul is writing to this church, he says, You know why it matters that God gave his only son? This is why it matters. He says, He who did not spare his own son... It's a rhetorical question. Nothing can. Nothing can. So no matter what you're going through today, and I know many of you are going through a lot, looking back and seeing that God did not withhold his only son should be the anchor, the bedrock, the pillow on which you lay your head down every night saying, if he did that for me, I can trust him right now. I can trust him with whatever comes my way because there's nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. And I know that because he did not withhold his only son. Let's pray, church. Well, Father, as we end our time in your word, I, I'm blown away that you did this for a person like me. I don't know Why? but I want to believe your word. I want to rejoice in your word. I want to live with joy because of what we see here. That you are not only a God who provides, but you are a God who provides ultimately, even at the greatest cost to you. So Father, as we end our time in your word, I pray that we would be able to respond. Respond in in just adoration. Maybe for some of us, Lord, that you would just allow some to respond in belief and trust for the first time. Lord, we're so thankful for you. We needed you. You provided for us. We still need you. You still provide for us. Lord, we love you. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.